0: We're in a series in this book in the middle of our Bibles called the Psalms, and already by Psalm 3, we've run into two of the most difficult themes that we find in the Psalms. The first theme is lament, what we sometimes call complaint. That's in verses 1 and 2. We'll look at those in just a minute here, but that's what I'm referring to. Verses 1 and 2 is a theme of lament, of telling God what's wrong. The other difficult theme in this psalm, and you see it in other psalms as well, is what we call imprecation, or you might be more familiar with this term, imprecatory psalms. These are psalms of judgment. These are psalms, like we just sang, or like we heard Drew sing in others, from verse 7, Lord, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. These are hard parts of the Bible hard parts in psalms. Hold off on that for now. We'll talk a little bit about it today, and then we will uh, deal with it more in upcoming weeks. Psalm 3, you see, is written by David. D.A. Carson says this about David. It fits this psalm so well. David would doubtless make many of us uncomfortable if he lived today. He was such a, an intense man, exuberant in his pleasures, crushed in his discouragement, powerful in his leadership, and unrestrained in his worship. That's David, and we see a hint of it this morning, a hint of that, what Carson talks about in Psalm 3. But before we get to the actual verses of Psalm 3, let's take notice of that title where it says it's a psalm of David. Some psalms give more information, though, than just The author, this one says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now I want to spend some time on those pregnant words. They're just loaded with implications for the rest of the psalm. As I said, several psalms have titles. Some of them give a sort of historical context for the writing of that psalm. Some of those that give a historical context for the writing of that psalm are helpful for the psalm. Some aren't. Some are, you know, vague enough that you, you shouldn't read too much into what it says there in the title. You could you could realize quickly that it, it could mean this or it could mean that. It, it could imply this or imply that. But this one is a little clearer. This this one really points to a specific story. That title of Psalm 3 refers to a story that unfolded over years and made up some of the darkest days of the Old Testament Jewish kingdom. So I don't want to take for granted that you know the story of David in Absalom and hence you know the implications of that for Psalm 3. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of what we find in the book of 2 Samuel. You might want to flip back to 2 Samuel Hold your finger in Psalm 3 and flip back to 2 Samuel, and I'll point out a few verses, but basically just mention chapters and then some headings within those chapters. I'll give you a, a cliff notes of 2 Samuel 2 all the way to 16. I think really this is useful for understanding Psalm 3. You can notice just the headings in your Bible. If your Bible has headings, they're added there for our, our Well, for our searching, right? Our rummaging through the Bible to find something quickly. So you see in 2 Samuel 2, King Saul dies there. David is made king of Judah in 2 Samuel 2. 2 Samuel 3, here's part of the story that's uh, interesting and leads to something relevant for Psalm 3. In 2 Samuel 3, Abner, he's the former commander of Saul's army. Remember, Saul the king before David, who was against David. Well, Abner joins David in 2 Samuel 3. Now, David already has a general, you could say, for his military. It's a guy named Joab. Joab's not only a little nervous about this new guy, Abner, because of all the bad blood between the Saul party and the David party, or the Saul army and the David army, but Joab's also mad at Abner, to say the least, because in battle, Abner was the one who killed Joab's brother. So in 2 Samuel 3, Joab returns the favor and he kills Abner at the city gate, just knifes him in the belly. The difference between Abner killing Joab's brother and Joab killing Abner is the difference between battle and murder. Okay, so... There's a big difference in a sense, right? One one is fair game. In a war, killing is part of what you signed up for. But at the city gate, when someone says, hey, come here, let me tell you a secret, you're probably not expecting a knife. So David doesn't agree with this, what Joab has done, and he says basically, this blood is on your hands Joab, but otherwise he does nothing about it. There's no punishment for Joab committing cold-blooded murder. That's a foreshadow of what's to come. Tuck that away. Second Samuel 4 through 7, we can just kind of take that as a chunk. These are chapters about David's kingdom, about him setting it up in various ways, setting up the worship. He's coronated, all that. In 2 Samuel 7, we have God's promises to David about his kingdom. And you might know these are big promises. So I'll just point out one verse. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. God promises to David that your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a big promise. And it's relevant to Psalm 3. So tuck that away if you would. Psalm 8 and Psalm 10 are military battles, we can skip those. Psalm 11 is the famous story of David with Bathsheba. David has an adulterous one-night stand with a woman in the city who's married. And then there's the scandalous multi-layered cover-up that takes place over the next year. All that happens in 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David's sin with Bathsheba. No one, David thinks, no one knows, but God knows and God has revealed it to Nathan and Nathan confronts David. In 2 Samuel 12, thankfully David repents, but through Nathan, God communicates certain judgments upon David's house and his kingdom for this sin. So look at Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Look at this judgment that's to come. Nathan says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, war within, because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to uh, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Judgment's coming. Tuck that one away. Then Second Samuel 13. Boy, it's a page torn right out of a Jerry Springer episode. If 2 Samuel 11 wasn't bad enough, 2 Samuel 12 goes like this. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel uh, 11 wasn't bad enough, and 2 Samuel 13 gets much worse. David has a beautiful daughter named Tamar. And in this family, there are all kinds of half-brothers and half-sisters because David has all kinds of wives and concubines. So one of her half-brothers, a guy named Amnon, wants her. And so he takes her. He violates her. And immediately, look at verse 15, he hates her. Chapter 13, verse 15, he hates her after he had her. Enter another sibling, Absalom. Finally, right? The guy that's referred to in Psalm 3, Absalom. Enter Absalom, who was Tamar's full-blood brother, And understandably, he wants justice for what Amnon did. But once again, David does nothing. Once again, like the Joab murder, he sweeps it under the rug. So for two years, Absalom, the brother of Tamar, is brewing until he finally kills Amnon himself. Afraid of David's response to this. I mean, after all, things are getting a little out of hand in the royal family, aren't they? I mean, at some point, David might actually do something, and so Absalom flees, and he leaves Jerusalem and lives in exile for three years. 2 Samuel 14, Absalom returns home. David allows him back into the city for the first time, but he's not allowed near the family, and that's the arrangement for the next two years. For two years, Absalom's in town and doesn't come over. He's not allowed to come even in front of the king. Look at chapter 14, verse 28. So Absalom lives for two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Finally, by the end of this chapter, Absalom's allowed back to see the king, his father, and he bows before David. He comes in humbly, and David kisses his son. It all looks like a happy ending, right? We'll turn the page. Second Samuel 15 begins immediately with Absalom stirring up discontent with the people. He's going around and gossiping about his father David. He's stirring up restlessness in the community, you could say. Not only that, he's planning a mutiny. Not only that, he's forming an army on his own. So look at chapter 15, verse 12. Well, the second half of it. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. They're pulling, Absalom and company are pulling from David's side, the loyal followers of David, and getting them to go against the king. The writing's on the wall. By the time David gets wind of what's happening here in chapter 15, it's clear that the only thing he can do is leave town to get out. It's that bad. And so he flees Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 16 Absalom takes full control of Jerusalem now. And as a symbol of assuming the throne, this is ugly, he takes ten of his father's concubines as his own. I'll read it for you. Chapter 16, starting in verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, this is David's former longtime counselor, who now is the counselor to Absalom. He's left David. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he's left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. It's going to make the the parting of the ways much clearer, right? you are going to be against Absalom or for him if he does something that's such a divider like this. Verse 22, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Yikes. Well, this is what we read back in chapter 12, isn't it? Remember God promised this? Just thumb back just so we can read it again and remember that this was foretold by the prophet Nathan. This would happen to David because of his sin with Bathsheba. Chapter 12, verse 11, God said, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and I'll give them to your neighbor. You probably read that first and thought neighbor like some guy down the street. Well, neighbor, just his as closest as neighbor someone in the someone in his own house. I'll give it to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but this thing I'll do will be before all Israel. Back to the story in Second Samuel, verse 7, chapter 17. This counselor, Ahithophel, David's longtime trusted advisor, remember is now on Absalom's side, and he asks Absalom if he can take 12,000 men and go on the hunt for David. And they're on the hunt for David only not for any of David's men. David isn't alone. You might picture him at this point like a vagabond in a cave, and that's not true. He has an army with him, but he's displaced. He's not in his hometown. He's not on his throne. He's effectively not ruling other than leading an army. So he's on the run, even with an army. But those who are chasing him, Ahithophel and 12,000 others, aren't ready to go to war with these these others who are siding with David, they want to just take out one guy, David. That way there's less of a chance of a nation being mad at you, Absalom, when, when this coup is over. The end of the conflict is as odd and sad as the rest of it. Second 2 Samuel 18, Absalom's long locks, think Fabio, they're so long, they get caught in a tree. And he's stuck there. He's hanging. He is pulled off his mule, hanging in midair by his hair. Not a good place to be if you're fooling around with a war. David's men come upon him, but they don't do anything to him. They leave him there. Why? Because David has told his army, when you come across him, treat him gently. Well, Joab hears about this, and he heads off immediately, and he kills Absalom himself, and then burns his body in the woods. Ironic, huh? It comes full circle with Joab, doesn't it? David never punished Joab for his murder of Abner. David does nothing for his own daughter's rape. This eventually leads to Absalom's revolt. This eventually leads to David's exile from his throne, and eventually to his own son's death. And it's another unlawful death at the hands of Joab. And David never really does anything about Joab, even after all this. He only demotes him, but keeps him around, and he keeps causing trouble. David has to warn Solomon, his son, when he inherits the throne, watch out for Joab, he's trouble. Why didn't you handle that, David? David? Solomon has to eventually handle it. The problem gets passed off to his own son. So that's what Psalm 3 means when it says, David wrote this when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. It means he probably wrote it somewhere around 2 Samuel 15 or 16, but you kind of need to know the the complexity of the story, just how dysfunctional this family is and how, how heartbreaking this Thing would be of being on the run from your son Absalom. The whole world seems on the brink for David at this time of writing Psalm 3. It doesn't get much worse than this, right? I mean, God's big promises in 2 Samuel 7 are being threatened? I mean, is this really going to come true where Absalom gets his way and the promises God gave about David's kingdom being righteous being eternal. is just going to disappear. The throne is on the brink. The nation's on the brink. The family is in shambles. You're a king and you're on the run. And you're on the run from your son. A whole country is against you in some ways. Even closest longtime advisors have turned against you. And you sit down... And in the midst of it all, you write verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. We call this lament. That's the first thing to note on your sermon notes, lament. Verses 1 and 2 describe What we call lament, and hence Psalm 3 is what we might call lament psalm. There are 70 lament psalms. You might not have known that, but by far the most typical kind of psalm is a lament psalm. By far the most frequent theme in the psalms is one of lament. Not joy, but sadness, difficulty, brokenness, doubt. Now I said lament is sometimes called complaint I'd like to suggest that throughout this series we use the word lament rather than the word complaint. Not all scholars do this. I I have preached on lament psalms in the past before and freely used that word complaint. I think the way we use complaint today, though gives too many wrong connotations for what the psalms are doing when they lament. I know lament isn't an ideal word because it's an old term and we don't use it that much. But maybe that's exactly why we should use it because otherwise we really don't have a category for this thing that's happening in the psalms of, well, giving God your poop list. Right? That's what lament psalms do. They share with God... Heartaches. On one level, it's fair to say that's complaint. On another level, it's not fair to say it's complaint. Ron and I were talking about this this week. I have an in house Psalms scholar that I consult. I feel very funny preaching in the Psalms when a guy who did his dissertation on the Psalms is is listening every week. But uh, anyway, I was helped by Ron this week as I said, I I don't know if I like this word complaint. And he said, Yeah, I I don't either. He said, complaint is something you do at Target when they've done something wrong to you and they need to fix it. They need to give something back to you to keep you because they've, they've wronged you. That's the way we complain today. That's the way we say we're going to file a complaint. So I think complaint has too many wrong connotations for what the Psalms are doing when they lament because complaint can go too far. Or we can just put it this way, lamenting to God can be wrong. It can be sin. I'm not saying the Psalms are doing that in the models they give us. I'm saying our broken version of it or our twisted version of it, our uncareful, unstudied version of it, can be sin. You see, some of us, on the one hand, need to hear from Hebrews 4 that we have a Savior who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. That's wonderful news, isn't it? Sympathetic with our weaknesses. He, he knows what it's like to hunger. He knows what it's like to be opposed. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to suffer in so many ways. We need to hear that. And we need to hear the invitation to come and pour out your heart to the Lord. Some of us need to hear that. Others However, may need to hear that in the Psalms, lament is, yes, honest, but not completely unguarded. It's not revolt against Him, our Creator. Honesty is not the only goal when we lament. It's not the only virtue. So that we can tell Him whatever we think, and His response will always be, Well, thanks for being honest. And that's it. He pats you on the back and and you you move on. No. Do you remember the children in the wilderness? They complained. They did complaint. And God struck down 3,000 in one day for their murmuring. Some complaint God doesn't like. Some complaint is wrong-headed. Remember the story of Job. So much of Job is Job trying to figure out whether he has a just complaint or not, right? He and his friends are wrestling through this issue. Do I have a complaint with him or not? And his friends say, you don't have a complaint, you must have sinned. And he says, I didn't sin, at least not majorly so. Therefore, I do have a complaint. And it seems to grow through the book of Job. Job's restlessness, his antsiness, his need to to have a impartial judge who will decide between him and God (laughs) so God responds in Job 38 if you're not familiar with how God responds to Job read Job 38 to 42 perhaps later this afternoon and you'll see there there's some complaint God doesn't like essentially God responds with shut up I don't think you're You're needing to give me any counsel here. I don't think I need to consult you about what's going on in my world. Some complaint goes too far. Job's an example of that. The Israelites in the wilderness were sometimes an example of that. But healthy, godly, scriptural lament, like we see here in Psalm 3, may question God, in a sense, or question parts of his plan, ask him things. Even question might bring the wrong connotation. Like, I'm going to question him. What, like you're going to interrogate him? Like he's required to give you an answer? Asking him questions is one thing. But so often these psalms we call lament don't accuse. They put it in questions in a more humble way than an accusation would be, right? By questioning, is this, are you there? What's going on? It feels like you're not there. It's, it's a little bit less forceful than an um, in indicative statement, charging him, accusing him of something. Healthy, godly, scriptural lament in the Psalms, except for one or two. Let's just put those on the side for now, and we'll look at those in later weeks. Let's put them on the side for now and say, basically, all lament Psalms don't stay on lament. There's a progression in these psalms. It moves beyond lament. It starts with lament in order to get out of lament. It starts with honesty in order to try to fix the thinking. So as we go through Psalm 3 some more, I want you to watch for progression. I want you to see how it it ends better than it began. And all but one or two of them do that. So let's look at the specifics in Psalm 3. What does David lament? Verse 1, he laments that countless foes, how many, he doesn't know, it's a, almost a question, how many are my foes? And they keep rising even. It's like they're coming out of the woodwork, they're cockroaches. You think, well, that guy is with me, right? Ahithophel's with me. Oh, he's not! Ahithophel left! left! Really? More and more just keep rising. So in verse 6, later on, he'll say, many thousands of people have set themselves against him. They are all around him. Many thousands. Hmm. Many are mocking. It says in verse 2, they're saying of David's soul, there's no salvation for him. Those promises that God gave, they must have applied to someone else. They must have been figured some other way. They obviously don't apply to David because David's doom is sure. He is on the out. There is nothing but, but crossing some T's and dotting some I's here to, to make sure that the kingdom is in the right hands. Now by the way, this is really just a by the way, but the word Selah at the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 4, and then again at the end of verse 8. You might have noticed today we did some scripture readings, and Selah was up there on the screen, but it wasn't read. Now, why is that? Well, one reason is we're not sure what Selah means. I mean, any commentary you look at that's decent, it'll almost always say, we don't know what this means. Here are the possibilities, they'll say. Um, It's either... A musical comment about crescendo or it's a musical comment about rest. Now some would say rest, that's what it is and so it has sort of theological meditative implications. When you get to a sela you rest and you ponder but it's a musical term, it's for getting the choir to stop there. Um, it, there's probably not any meditative direction built into it. And that's why some will not read the Selah aloud in public reading. If you want to read it and you want to read in meaning to it, go and do it. Have fun with it. Okay, that's lament. (coughs) Then it moves to remembrance. The second thing we see in this psalm, And it's a typical progression in other lament psalms. Remembrance, verses 3 to 5. Look at verse 3. But, you can see the but changes things, right? So lament, that's sort of dark, it's negative. But, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Wow. He remembers, he recounts. It's not like he forgot these things, but... Oftentimes in our sadness and our sorrow, we we do forget things, right? Or at least we live like we've forgotten these things. And we need remembrance, we need recalling, we need even the repetition of truth in our mind. So he tells himself, well he tells God, but in a sense it's not for God, it's for himself. You are a shield for me. You're you're the thing that blocks the arrows. You're the protection. You're my cover. He says, you're my glory. The glorious King David says, you're my glory. I don't have any other glory apart from whatever glory you give. That's even clearer, I suppose, when you're, not, when you're not in Jerusalem, when you're not sitting on a regal throne in a palace. And God, he says, is the lifter of my head. You can picture that, right? You know that word picture, the lifter of my head. We don't say it much, but you, can, you see it in movies. You can, you, can, you can picture the downcast head getting lifted up by another's hand, pulling the chin up, saying, look at me. It's saying that God lifts up his countenance, that God lifts him from despair, lifts him from self-focus, lifts him from, from doubt. He's the lifter of my head. David then recounts in verse 4 how he's responded to God and how God has responded to him. He says, I cried to the Lord. That's past tense. And he answered me from his holy hill. What's the holy hill? Jerusalem. David's not there, but God is. The true king is there. He answered me from my holy hill. He simply, he simply recounts for himself that God has answered prayer. And you think, you can just hear it, right? The skeptics thinking, he answered you? Well, what request did you make then? You're still dethroned, right? You're still exiled. Absalom's still in charge. You're on the run. Many thousands of people are against you. Didn't you hear yourself? He answered me when I cried to him. Well, we don't know what the request was, and we don't know how God answered. It really doesn't matter. He's telling himself, God hears, God answers, God is good. That's all he needs to know. God answers prayer. It's simple. He may not answer the way we like, he might not answer the ones we want him to answer, or that he might not answer the timing that we would prefer. But it's a principle. God answers prayer. We cry to him, and he hears. He answers. Have you noticed that part of, well, what we saw on their point one with lament, what we see in point number two here with remember, part of what's going on here, part of what these do is help diagnose what's wrong. They help us understand what's going on. So sometimes sadness, sometimes feelings of anger are, here's one option, wrong. right? Sometimes we're sad because we feel guilty, and we feel guilty in part because we have sin and there are consequences for sin. Sometimes we're sad because we've been wrong or we've had a wrong reaction to others or to circumstances. Sometimes we feel sadness and anger and we're right. We're right. That's one response is, we're right to feel sad here. We're right to be angry about this here. Either it's a righteous indignation towards sin, and we'll talk about that in upcoming weeks, or it's a, a sadness about the way things are broken in this world. And sin is painful. Sometimes feelings of sadness and anger are unexplainable. If you just you don't know. You don't know why you're sad. You don't know why it's dark. And sometimes it's a mess, messy mixture of all of those. You see, lamenting and then remembering who he is help us to figure out what's going on, what the problem is. Look at verse 5. He remembers, he recounts how the Lord let him lay down and sleep and he woke up. I love this. God sustained him and protected him even while he was helpless. Isn't it just so telling? Such a a message to us that one-third of our lives we spend... Motionless, laying there, doing nothing, basically defenseless. If someone snuck in quietly enough, they could get you. You're just there, half naked, like a baby, drooling, and in some other la-la land world. It's a symbol of the fact that we're not in control. It's a symbol of our trust in Him, not just our padlocks. not just our our guns or our security systems. It's a symbol that we trust him when we lay down and we sleep well. And in the midst of all this, 12,000 men plus, out to kill David, he has a good night's sleep. Why? He trusts God. Imagine that. He laid down, he fell asleep, and when he woke up, he was okay. And it's not because he sleeps like a, a cat, You know, cat reflexes and can wake up and pounce in a second. Although there is one story of him doing that with Saul. But but it's because he trusts God and God is the one who protects him while he's sleeping. There are two relevant psalm passages that talk about sleep that I think are good supplements what we're seeing here in Psalm 3. Turn over to Psalm 121 quickly and notice what it says there about sleep. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. There it says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you doesn't slumber. God doesn't sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So David can sleep because God's on the watch all the time. Look at Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. You might know these verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, picture a a watchman at night trying to stay awake. Unless the the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. A lesson for us non-watchman people. It's vain that you rise up early, And go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now some commentators say that this shouldn't be translated he gives to his beloved sleep, but he gives even while he sleeps. He's working, he's giving, he's sustaining, he's providing even while we sleep. It's vain to rise up early, go to bed late, to be anxious, anxious, anxious. Uh, He does work um, in greater work than we can ever do, even while we sleep. Praise God for that. These are the things that he remembers. Back to Psalm 3, and then we move to a third section where it's resolve. Resolve in verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. I won't be afraid, even if thousands of people are against me. Just imagine that. We lose sleep, we're bothered, we think something's wrong at the control room of heaven when one person's really mad at us, or when the boss doesn't get us, right? Or when this friend has turned mean this month. Thousands are against me. Thousands are encircling me. Me, They have a single mission to kill one man, David. And he says, I will not be afraid. Can you imagine? I mean, the only thing I could think of in today's terms that would be like that is Osama bin Laden. Don't think of David as Osama bin Laden. David's more right than Osama bin Laden. But that picture of being hunted by a sophisticated military, how scary. You know it's just a matter of time, in a sense. But he will not be afraid. What is he doing when he says, I will not be afraid? He's preaching to himself. He's making resolve for himself here, isn't he? He's making some takeaways from the implications of what he just said he remembered. The Lord's a shield. The Lord gives sleep and protects while you sleep. The Lord's your glory. The Lord's the lifter of your head. Therefore, he will not be afraid. And that doesn't mean that he isn't afraid. I know it sounds like it. It sounds very victorious or naively optimistic. But it's neither. It's resolve. By saying, I have no reason to be afraid. And I don't want to be afraid. He's actually fighting fear. No one says, I will not be afraid. When they're not afraid, they tell themselves that precisely when they are afraid. So he's fighting for comfort. He's fighting for consolation in the midst of fear. And that'll have to keep happening, won't it? It's not something you say once, like a, a, a magic pill saying, I will not fear. Poof, you'll never fear again. You'll have to keep fighting this, as we all do. And then it leads to request. The fourth thing on your sermon notes there is request. Verses 7 through 8 talk about this. Verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, get up. Get off your throne. Come and do something. See and react. Come to my help. Save me. Not just save me physically, that's certainly part of the request here, right? Act on my behalf, protect me, care for me, but it's also save the kingdom, it's also save my soul. Remember, they're saying he has no hope with God anymore. By saying that, they were saying he's out of God's favor. And by saying that, they were saying not only that he's not going to be God's king anymore, but that he probably has no eternal hope. Save me. Pretty general requests. They're not lengthy. God has already promised these things in a sense, and He's not presuming to tell God exactly how to do things. He's making requests, but these are general requests guided by what God has said in His Word and what God has promised through prophets. And then there's this hard line at the end of verse 7. Strike my enemies on the cheek and break their teeth. So you notice on your sermon notes page, there's a a PS at the bottom there. Here's a PS of the PS. We're not going to deal with the PS. I'll let you fill in the blank because some of you will twitch if you don't get to fill that in. (laughs) The blank is just this. How should we understand imprecatory psalms? Because that's what that is. It's imprecation It's cursing enemies, and we don't have time for it today. There's no way we could introduce lament and introduce imprecatory psalms in one Sunday. I was too optimistic on Thursday when I made that outline. And so let's bump that until we get to Psalm 5 in a week or two, and uh, we'll deal with those kinds of psalms more thoroughly then. But I want to return to this thing. Instead of talking about imprecatory psalms, instead of even really dealing with anything at the end of verse 7, I want to return to this thing of lament psalms and to talk about that progression once again. so important that we see the progression. You see it? Lament. Tell God what's going on. He already knows. I know He already knows. Sometimes you don't know so one of the ways you can deal with sadness when you can deal with madness is by starting to list what's going on in your heart and your mind why are you restless start listing them write them down make a list at least of the big ones of worries of doubts of problems of struggles and then bring each of those before the lord Tell him. Don't start out by telling him what to do about it. Start out by telling him that it's there. You say again, well, what good does it do if he already knows? Maybe I should just make the list and I don't make it a matter of prayer. Well, isn't the Psalms is a book a guide for us? I mean, if nothing else, that can be an answer. Why tell God about your problems? Because the Psalms tell us to. They show us that we should. Make a list. Bring them before the Lord when you're fighting darkness, heaviness, sadness, anger. Then, remember things. Recount things. Look at that list of your laments and start saying to each one, what do I know about this? What does God's word say to this? What would a good godly friend, a a good wise pastor say to this? How does God speak to this problem, this issue, this heartache, right now, and you list those under each of your laments, and then you preach those to yourself. You stir up things about those, right? You don't just write them down and let them be stale, black and white on the, the paper there. You preach the truths to yourselves and preach implication of these truths to yourself. Which means make some resolutions. I wills, I wills. I will go to your word. I will go to you in prayer. I will trust you. Oh, it doesn't have to be huge resolves. I will work out every day. I will really try harder about this or that. They're simple resolves oftentimes in the Psalms, but they're so simple, they're so profound and so essential. to those kind of resolves you list things then make requests I think only then are we in a decent position to make requests to God otherwise we come simply saying God fix the hurt I don't like hurt take away this And by that we presume to know all the purposes that he has and what he's doing. And we don't know those things. And so I think number one and number two help us to get our head screwed on straight. To lament and then to remember, to recount, to preach to ourselves. That gives perspective. And then we're in a good position to start asking for certain things. And then we praise him. We keep praising him. And we don't feel like it. You praise him. And you keep praising him. And again, that gives us perspective, doesn't it? That's one way we walk ourselves out of the miry clay. And say, okay, I did that. Didn't work. Repeat. Do it again. Do it again. And if it persists for a long time, then consult a friend, consult a pastor. But we don't give up. This is, this is our lives, folks. We will lament. The question is, are we going to, to simply feel like we're on a roller coaster where we have no say in where this thing goes? No. No, I, I think the progression means we have an obligation in our sadness and our sorrow to not be passive about this, but to fight. It's so easy to feel... In our lament, numb and lame, emotionally lame. Legs don't work. Emotional legs don't work. You can't, you can't do anything. We feel like we're simply victims of our circumstances or victims of our feelings. We need to buy into this. It is sin To stay in your pity party. We should bring our pity party before the Lord. And that may mean that we repent right there because our pity party is sin, it's wrong. But some pity parties are, well, they're true pities, and they're not very good parties. It's real hardness, it's real difficulty. And with those, we bring them before the Lord, we then go to work on remembering things about Him and His plan. We start thinking about implications, what it means for us, what we should do and how we should live. And then we request certain things of him to help us and what we can't fix on our own. And then we praise him for his goodness through it all. Salvation, David says, belongs to the Lord in verse 8. Which tells us that salvation doesn't rest in David. He's a good human model for how to deal with our suffering but even David is forced to look outside of himself, isn't he? You see, on the one hand, Psalm 3 shows David being such a powerful, good example for how to give your burdens to the Lord, how to walk yourself out of the miry clay, even with mud still on your knees, yes. On the other hand, Psalm 3 is built upon, remember, that background story of 2 Samuel, and it's loaded with David's sin. For all of his military prowess, in Second Samuel, David comes across as generally a weak leader. Generally a weak man. And probably a poor father. That's okay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's savingly okay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. He does it. So maybe that's why Psalm 3 doesn't have any repentance in it. I was troubled by that reality this week. If Psalm 3 is built upon Second Samuel, and 2 Samuel is loaded with David's errors and sin, weaknesses, why don't we see David in Psalm 3 say anything about it? Why doesn't he say, I had it coming, God said it was coming, it wasn't just Absalom's fault, it was also mine. Well, I don't think we should assume that David wasn't repentant about those things. I think Psalm 3 doesn't include his repentance, though, because of this. Because his hope doesn't rest on his repentance. He has repented. He is repenting. It's not first and foremost, though. What I mean is he's looking outside of himself in Psalm 3. What I mean is, is that he trusts in God in spite of himself, not because of himself. So, David is great hope for sinners, and he is a wonderful example in our suffering.